Well, I invite you, if you have your Bible, it's Hebrews, New Testament, book of Hebrews, chapter 4 this morning. Hebrews 4, find your place there, and I want to read these two verses. Hebrews 4, starting verse 12, verses 12 and 13. I'll put those up on the screen there. If you don't have a Bible, just look there. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Let me read these two verses. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. These two verses, these two sentences, bring to a conclusion the first major section of this sermon letter that we call Hebrews. And what a powerful, even sobering conclusion it is. So as we think on this conclusion, let me just one more time remind us of this first major section that we are bringing to a close here this morning. Hebrews 1.1 all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. So from the first verse of the book to chapter 4.13 is this big section, this first main part of his letter. And here are, my summary, we've seen these, I'm going to keep reminding us of these. Here are the two, I think, two main points of his opening section of his sermon letter. First, by way of this summary, number one, the God who spoke at Mount Sinai, God of the Bible, the God who spoke at Mount Sinai, he spoke by angels to Moses has now spoken definitively in his Son. The God who spoke there on Mount Sinai, the law, that great scene, has now spoken finally, decisively, definitively in his Son. And his exhortation from that is, pay attention to this word, to this final word in the Son. So that's how he began his Letter, his sermon, way back in chapter 1, verse 1, God after he spoke. And I want you to notice, as I just highlight a few of these things, the emphasis on God's word, his speaking. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken in his Son. The Son is the final, decisive revelation of God. The Son Himself, not angels. And He goes on to say, This Son is now the exalted Son, the heir of all things, and He's superior to any angel. He's not an angel, He's superior to all angels. And His application or His exhortation from that truth is chapter 2, if you remember this, verse 1. For this reason, because God has spoken definitively in the Son, for this reason we must pay close attention 
to what we have heard. This word we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, that's the law, proved unalterable or reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he's drawing this comparison, this analogy between God's people in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, who received that awesome word at Mount Sinai through angels and through the mediator Moses. And if that word was true and they didn't escape, so to speak, if they ignored it, disobeyed it, how shall we escape if we neglect this final great word in the Son? Then he goes on in chapter 2 to just explain how the, the Son, the eternal Son, has come to be the exalted Son at God's right hand. And what he explains in that and what we've been through is that it's through his incarnation, his becoming a man and his sufferings that he becomes the exalted Son and Savior and High Priest. And right at the end of chapter 2, he, he just kind of drops this great topic, great subject, Christ as our High Priest. The only place in all the Bible Jesus is our high priest, but he doesn't develop that yet. He's going to in much of this book. But before he does that, here's the second point. He's still on this first major section of our, this exhortation, and so he, he, he wants to extend the analogy. Here's the second point of this intro, first section. Avoid the unbelief of God's people after Sinai, after Mount Sinai, the people in the wilderness who failed to enter his rest. Avoid the unbelief of that generation who received that word at Sinai. They failed to enter his rest. And his exhortation through chapter 3 is hold fast, hold fast to Christ. Pay attention, hold fast to Christ. Consider Jesus. So before he develops this idea of Jesus as high priest, he just continues the analogy of us with God's people under the old covenant, God's people at Mount Sinai. They received this amazing revelation. They saw God's great works. We have received a greater word, a final word in Jesus, in the Son. But what happened to that generation after Mount Sinai? What happened to them? And he's drawing on this very powerful example that we're meant to learn from. What happened? What happened is that the entire generation died in the wilderness in unbelief under God's judgment. They rebelled against God. They didn't believe his promise. They didn't believe his character. They didn't trust him. And they died in judgment in the wilderness. And his big point in this part of his intro is don't follow their example. You who have believed, you who have received this final word in Christ, don't do what they did. And have hard hearts of unbelief and fall away from God and not hold fast to Christ and turn away. Don't follow their example. Avoid that unbelief. Enter God's rest. They, they failed to enter the land. And the land, we saw it last week, was just a, a picture, a type ultimately of God's final rest. Our final home. This heavenly dwelling. And he's saying, don't, don't fail to enter his rest. He uses Psalm 95, 
God's word as his warning. And he develops it, and we have seen it. He uses these words, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, like they did back in the wilderness. This ongoing warning to us, not to repeat that. Today, people of God, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And the word that we hear today is the final great word in Jesus, this good news, this gospel. If you hear his voice, hear that word, don't harden your hearts in unbelief because unbelief in this word of promise becomes a word of judgment. It's Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. There's an invitation to continue trusting God's word now in Christ. But if you harden your hearts in unbelief, what happened to them? Well, God, the end of that, verse 11 of chapter 3, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. It becomes a word of judgment. Don't follow their example. Beware of unbelief. Beware of falling aware. Away, beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Instead, we, we who have believed, be diligent to enter that rest. Continue trusting the promises of God. So look at chapter 4, verse 11. This is the last thing we saw. As he comes back to his main exhortation in this first part of his letter, chapter 4, verse 11, right before the verses I just read, he brings again this exhortation. This is his point. Let us, therefore, be diligent. He's talking to us, believers. Be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Be diligent to enter that final, he has that final future rest in mind, that final heavenly rest. We who have believed, we are entering, be diligent to enter, which means continue holding fast to Christ. Beware of unbelief rising up. Continue in steadfastness and obedience. Watch for the uprisings of unbelief. Gather together as believers to encourage each other in the faith. Be diligent to enter that rest. And then he he just comes back. This is what he leaves in our ears, that example again. Lest any one of you fall through following the same example, just like in Israel, the same example of disobedience. Their unbelief in God's promise and God's character led to their disobedience. They didn't enter. They didn't obey. Beware, he says, lest any one of you fall through following the same example of disobedience. Verse 12, 4. Let me put it up again. It's what I read earlier. For the word of God is. Now, this is his conclusion. See it? For the word of God is. And he brings this whole section to a conclusion. Now, I just, I underline there the first word. Note it. I just always encourage you, read your Bible, look for these words, look for these connecting words. He's, he's making arguments, right? He's drawing conclusions. It's how the Bible works. For the word of God is this. For, what's that there for? He's given a reason. So just note this under this opening for the word of God is. 
This is a reason. He's giving a reason in these two verses. He gives a reason for being diligent to enter God's rest and not fall into unbelief, disobedience. You could say, because, right? Be diligent to enter his rest, lest you fall through following their example, because the word of God is, you hear it? It's an argument. He's, he's, he's making a reason. He's giving you a reason for what he just exhorted us to in verse 11. Which means, verse 12 of our Bibles is one of these very cherished verses of the Bible. And it is this statement about the Word of God. This is one that people memorize rightly about the nature of the Word of God. But just first see that this is not a standalone statement about the nature of God's Word. It comes in a context. It's a reason given for his prior exhortation. A reason to beware of unbelief for the Word of God is. So see the context here. It's a joy to get to see these perhaps familiar words in their context. Now the question for us should be, what does he mean in verse 12 by the Word of God? Do you see it? For the Word of God is. Why does he do that? Why does he go there? What does he mean in this context by the Word of God? And the reason I ask that question is because we Christian, we automatically think, when we hear the Word of God, we think what? The Bible, Scripture, which is a really good instinct to have because the Bible, Scripture, is the Word of God. We believe that absolutely here. It is the very Word of God. God breathed out. But that's not how he's using it firstly here. It has implications, implications for the nature of the Bible, but he's not just saying, for the scripture is, it's not quite what he means when he says, the word of God is here. As I tried to show in just that opening, he has been emphasizing God speaking, hasn't he? Up to this point, right? That's how he started the book. God spoke, God speaking. We need to Pay attention to the word we've heard. And he's going to end this section with a compelling assertion of our accountability before the word of God. He's drawing this to a conclusion. Our accountability before the word of God. The word that provides a great salvation. We have heard. A great promise of rest. That word is also a word of judgment on those who reject it. And that's his primary emphasis here. This word, he's thinking mostly in terms of judgment. Judgment. And his use here of word, let me just give it to you as I understand it. The word of God is the divine instrument of his infallible judgment. That's Firstly, I think what he's referring to by the word of God, the divine instrument of his infallible judgment. God's, God's word is an expression of himself, isn't it? What God is, his word is. God is living, his word is living. What God is, his word is. That's why there's a power in his words, like it's no other word. 
He'll say later in this same book, in chapter 11, we understand that the heavens, the worlds, excuse me, were prepared by the word of God. It's referring back to creation. Remember, God spoke creation into existence. What God is, his word is. God's word is an expression of himself. And here, it is personified as a instrument or even a weapon, a sword here. He's personifying God's word. Now, he could have just as easily said in verse 12, for God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's almost a synonym for God himself. The word of God, all through the Bible, is a synonym for God because what God is, his word is. But here he's drawing out this metaphor, really to make it powerful. He's, he's making these connections back to what he said about the word and God speaking here as an instrument and ultimately an instrument of his infallible judgment, evaluation. This, this is not a pleasant or comforting metaphor. His word, he says, is sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts through anything. That's not a pleasant metaphor. You can hear it in there. It's part of this warning. It renders an infallible judgment. There's no escape. No escape from it. You may ignore his word. You may not believe his word, but you will not escape his word. That's the idea. That's why he's using this word of God here, because he's been saying, hear the word, hear his word. The word is revealed in the Son. You cannot believe it, but you will not escape it. His word is the instrument of judgment. Jesus in fact, in his own ministry, in John chapter 12, kind of summarizes his, his ministry there in, in the Gospel of John. Right at the end of chapter 12, he says in verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, my words, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. This, this same word of promise, this same word becomes the instrument of judgment at the last day. That's the image we have here. So, my heading, we're just going to look at it a little bit closer, full exposure before God. Full exposure before God. I think that's the main point of this conclusion. And I'm drawing that language, exposure, from verse 13. Because verse 13, it's just, verse 13 is going to amplify verse 12. Right? They're not saying really two different things. They're saying the same thing in two different ways. God's word that judges the hearts, verse 13, and God himself. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to him. Complete, full exposure before God. So again, follow his logic here, his explanation. Don't fall away in unbelief, for God's word will surely find you out. There's no hiding. There's no fooling. There's no deceiving. God, you may deceive others. There's no deceiving him. Full exposure. 
Two verses, two points. I said it's almost the same. They're very overlapping points. Let's just look at it a little closer. Number one, the penetrating power of God's word. The penetrating power of God's word. Four, verse 12, the word of God is, and that's followed by five adjectives or five descriptions, five predicate adjectives he uses to describe the word of God is. Just follow in the text there. Do you see him? For the word of God is living. It's the first one. It's not dead. It's living. God is living. His word is living. It's unlike any other word. That's why it's powerful. It's living. And if it's living, number two, and active. It's alive. Active just means it's effective. It's doing something. Not just sitting there. God's word is living and active, that is effective, it's powerful, second one, and sharper, that's the third one, third adjective, and sharper, then he extends that image, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, now that image, any two-edged, he's not trying to draw out a metaphor there saying the Bible does two things, we use two-edged sword like that, here it just means it's really, really sharp. And it's really effective in what it does. In fact, it's sharper than any two-edged sword that you can imagine. Which leads to the fourth adjective following on that imagery of sword, piercing. See it? Piercing or penetrating. It's so sharp to pierce or penetrate. In fact, it, it penetrates pierces and divides what is otherwise indivisible. And you just list off these things. Do you see it? Piercing as far as the division of soul, spirit, joints, marrow. Now, don't get concerned. He's not, he's not concerned here with a precise kind of psychology of man or even an anatomy of man. He's just giving descriptions of the inner man. And this word is able to divide what we can't see. It's able to divide all the way into the inner man. There's really no distinction here. Soul, spirit, joints, marrow. You could add to that. Bones, liver. You just name your inward part here. Mind, heart. It's able to penetrate and divide, pierce and divide what is otherwise indivisible. That's the power of God's word. So here's, here's the point. Let me summarize that. God's word reaches into the deepest recesses of the human being. That's what he's trying to say by giving those soul, spirit, joints, marrow. God's word reaches, it's able to reach into the deepest recesses of the human being. There's no layer too deep or impenetrable. That's the image. There's layers and we have layers, and we hide behind layers, and there's nothing that it cannot penetrate. Now, when we read that kind of description, it's, it's visceral, isn't it? We're, we're meant to feel the sharp, penetrating power of God's Word. I said, that is not a comfortable metaphor. He wants us to feel that, feel like you're just getting driven through, and there is no hiding 
So there's the metaphor. It's powerful. God's word reaches into the deepest recesses of the human being. But what is the penetrating power of God? What's the reality behind this? What's he trying to get at? What's the fifth final adjective that he uses? Do you see it? Right at the end of verse 12. Judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the penetrating power of God's word. It judges or evaluates the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's Second note, to summarize that, God's word discerns and exposes all that goes on in the human heart. That's the power that he's getting at. That's why I say it's full exposure. There's, there's no escaping. His word penetrates and ultimately discerns, exposes all that goes on in the human heart. That's what, by judging, he's not thinking of the execution of judgment here by God's word, he's thinking of the evaluation, the discernment of God's word, and it's, and he just uses a couple of synonymous terms there, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The idea is everything that goes on in the heart, there's another one of those instruments, organs in our body, and we know the heart, heart in the Bible just is the seat of not only human emotion, but thinking and willing, that's the inner man, and it's able to judge the thoughts, that is the thoughts the purposes, the intentions, the desires, the motives, they are all exposed with an infallible judgment by his word. There are no secrets. Paul says, we learned it in Romans chapter 2, when Paul said, on that day, that day of judgment, on that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. There's no secrets. There's no hiding. There's no deception. That's the infallible instrument, judgment of God's word. And again, back to the context here. Ultimately, it's judging, it's discerning the reality of faith. The reality of our trust, our hope in Christ. There's no fooling him. There's no deceiving. There's no hiding. So that's powerful. That leads right to the second. The second point. Because he's just amplifying it. Now he's not going to use word of God. He's just God himself. So number two, we move from the penetrating power of God's word to the penetrating gaze of God's knowledge the penetrating gaze of God's knowledge. Verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. See it? You might expect him to say, there's no creature hidden from its sight, the word of God. But he just moves seamlessly from word of God to God himself. And he's saying almost the same thing that he said in verse 12. He's going to say it in verse 13 with more emphasis now on exposure. By God. God's, and here's the connection between verse 12 and 13. God's word so accurately exposes what is in the human heart because the God who speaks his word already knows what's there. Right? He knows what's there. That's why God's word so accurately evaluates the human heart because God knows. You see it, he says it both negatively and positively there. In verse 12, there is no creature hidden from his sight. 
Not a creature in this universe hidden from his sight. So here's the point. God knows all persons and all things, and he knows them totally and completely. That's his knowledge. He knows all persons, he knows all things, all creatures, and he knows them totally and completely. Now, this is just a basic tenet of biblical theism, we call it, of who God is, that God is revealed of himself. We call it, in theology, it's called God's omniscience, that at a single point in time, he knows everything, and he knows you, and he knows everything about you. Everything. He knows all things. There is nothing and there is no one hidden from God. There's no secret knowledge that God does not have. He knows all things. The psalmist says, Psalm 33, from his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. God knows all things, doesn't he? He says it negatively, there's no creature hidden from his sight, and then positively, but all things, again, everything is literally naked, that's the word, naked and exposed to the eyes of him. Again, what a sobering thought. All things are naked and exposed. It's speaking of the depth of his knowledge. Just like he said in verse 12, the thoughts and intentions, all things, they're they're exposed. The thoughts, not just what we do, but the thoughts, the attitudes, the motives, all things are exposed and open before God. This is his knowledge. The psalmist, Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Absolutely. This is the nature of God and his omniscience. We can't even begin to conceive it. Every creature, everything he knows completely and totally. He knows you better than you know you. Completely, every creature, all at the same time, that is God's knowledge. As I said, it's not a comfortable image, is it? Or thought. We are naked, literally, when he says that, we are naked and exposed. That idea, there's... Behind that word exposed, ultimately is this word prostrate. This, the idea, I think, is that we are totally helpless and defenseless before the inescapable eyes of God. Totally helpless and defenseless before the eyes of God. It is not comfortable to be naked and exposed before his eyes. And then he ends... As he describes God, all things are open or naked and exposed to the eyes of him. And then he does this wordplay. We must, here's the second note, final note. We must give a word, an accounting to him. 
It's kind of obscured in our translations. He began with the phrase logos, the, the word, verse 12, and he's going to end verse 13 with that. But now it's our word. We owe him a word. <laughs> Even as his word searches us, we must give a word, he means an accounting, to him. So yours may say something like that. We must give an account. Mine says, with, who, with him with whom we have to do, which is a little obscure. It's actually the, the word, word, and it's a, a word play. The answering word of accountability that we must give in light of the all-penetrating word of God. Again, it makes it all the more sobering. We will give an account on that day. Again, another basic tenet of the Bible, of our belief, Christian theism 101, not only God is all-knowing, but there's a day of accounting. There's a day that's coming that we will give an account. We will give a word in light of his all-penetrating word. That day, what Paul said, when God judges the secrets of the heart, and we're just sobered by it. How, 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 how can we make adequate response to his all-penetrating, searching word? So that's the end, the first section. Now I think, as I, I read those, again, I know these are often memorized verses. I, these, these concluding verses are unsettling, if not even terrifying. Who can stand before the all-penetrating word and gaze of God? He'll say something similar at another warning later in chapter 10 about those who would refuse this good news, this gospel. He'll end that by saying it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, here... To be exposed, full exposure before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, his word penetrating and searching and judging the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. Yeah, it's sobering. But again, let's not forget the context. Right? Remember, the context is this warning, back to verse 11, it's a warning against unbelief and not entering God's rest. Remember, the point of this book, there is a rest that is very precious and inviting and not frightening and very certain for those who are trusting in Christ. So this is just his incentive again, hold fast to Christ. Be diligent to enter that rest lest you fall away, for there is a penetrating gaze and power of God and his word. He knows and will search you. You hear it? So there's still an incentive to keep trusting in him. So let me, I want to finish this with this, these two implications here. Two implications. And it's where he's, the first one's where he's going, right? And I hope you're ready for where he's going especially after those two verses. Number one, the need for a great high priest. Let us hold fast our confession of Christ. Again, th these, these verses are given in that greater context of holding fast, entering the rest, 
not unbelief. Because God, God is not fooled. God's word is piercing. There's no creature hidden from his sight. We will be exposed, so hold fast to Christ. We need a great high priest. As I said, who, who will stand? Who would stand before this awesome God and his x-ray vision into our soul, right? Into our heart. No one. But that's the point. Verse 14, just sneak peek. This is next Sunday. Sneak peek here, verse 14. Therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You hear it? It's gonna, it's gonna launch into now giving us the reassurance of all the benefits that we have in Christ as our high priest. Oh, do we need a high priest who has cleansed us and who continually is before the throne interceding for us. We need it, and we have it. And that becomes the point of the letter. We have such a high priest. We have no need to fear this gaze of God. We have no need to fear his judgment ultimately on that day when he judges the secrets of men. Not because we're perfect, not because we have done away with sin, but because we're in Christ. We are in Christ. He's our high priest. So there is absolutely, for those in Christ, there is no word of accusation or judgment that can harm you, that can come against you. God has you, sees you in Christ. Christ makes intercession for us on the basis of his atonement. And so he's going to say, again, a sneak peek for next week, notice we go from the kind of the glare, the, the gaze of verse 13 and that frightening to verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive grace. <laughs> you hear that? How precious that is if you've wrestled with verses 12 and 13. What a precious relief that is that we draw near with confidence to receive grace so that now, as, as a Christian, as a believer, God's perfect, complete knowledge of us is not terrifying, but ultimately comforting. We opened our service this morning with that song, All My Ways Are Known to You. Hallelujah. All my ways are known to you. That's, that is reflecting Psalm 139 that I quoted earlier about God's intimate knowledge. The psalmist not not there reeling in fear and terror. It's his comfort. You've ordained my day. You know me. Oh, to be known by him. So that this day of verse 13 is not a terror to the believer. We need a great high priest, and we have him. Do you have him? Are you, are you in him? Because this day is coming, this day of accountability. You're not going to hide before God. You may hide now. You may deceive others so well. You may be uncertain, but you won't there. His word will penetrate and judge perfectly. I'll be found in Christ, in Christ as our high priest. Oh, Christian, are you holding fast to him? 
Hold fast to Christ in faith. So that's first implication, and that's just setting us up for next Sunday. But let me, let me close with number two. The present power of God's word. Allow it to search, expose, and correct us. Now I said that verse 12, when he says the word of God, he's not thinking firstly of the Bible or scripture. He's thinking of this Ultimately, this word of God's expression, his judgment that's coming. And yet, I said secondarily, there's an implication for Scripture because this is the word of God. This is the word of God, and it does have these qualities. And that's why people love this verse, rightly. It's not the primary point of this verse, but it certainly has implications for the nature of God's Word by extension for his written word. Encountering his word. Yes, God's word, because it's an expression of God himself in its written form, is living, active, powerful, a two edged sword that does examine us. Right? It does judge, it does discern the thoughts and intentions. It's like no other word. That's why we give ourselves to the Bible. Aaron exhorted us first, last Sunday of the year from Psalm 1 to abide in this word, right? To abide in this word. And we hear it again here, don't you, by implication? It's able to penetrate. It's able to expose as we come to it in faith. Oh, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart against it. Receive it. Paul said this to the Thessalonians, I believe, First Thessalonians 2, that we thank God that when you heard this message from us, you received it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is able to perform its work in you. Oh, it is. So give yourself to this word, to the scriptures. Yes, it's not always pleasant. It does expose, but for our good, for the believer's good. Yes, it will reveal where there's unbelief so that we might repent and continue trusting the promises of God. So give yourself to it. It's like no other book. Well, we'll pick it up next Sunday with Christ our high priest. Let me pray for us as we close. Father... We are sobered when we read these words in your word about your word of judgment ultimately. Oh, I just I pray for each of us this morning that we would be found in Christ where no word of judgment can come against us because of Christ, our high priest. May he be very precious to us this morning. If, if any are not in Christ, would you draw them now? Would they hear your word and not harden their heart again but hear your word and come, trust your promises in Christ and find rest. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.